Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. What uh, I want to shift gears to now and, and talk more specifically about the pre-marriage conversations that I try and have with couples. And uh, what we're going to do is divide this in two halves. Uh, so today we'll just talk about the theological uh, foundations and frame, and then next time uh, we're going to, I can't remember when we're going to do it sometime in October, I think, talk about the five conversations specifically that I, I want to have with couples. So we'll talk about that in a minute. So the first thing that uh, we try and do uh, when we lay out foundation for um, uh, pre-marriage counseling is a theological foundation, and these are rooted in these four texts, uh, which you see uh, written in written there. I think uh, so. Genesis one, Genesis two, Genesis three, uh, and then um, the Ephesians five. So, so what I try and do is frame for people it in this way: uh, What did God have in mind when He invented marriage in the first place? What did he have in mind in, for the relationships between men and women in the first place? There are probably no more tendentious relationships than those that exist between men and women universally. Um, and, and uh, you know, clearly this is not what God had in mind with the Genesis 1 narrative, which we'll talk about here in a minute. So what did he have in mind for relationships between men and women um, uh, generally and for marriage specifically? And then what did we do to screw it up? And what are then the two alternatives that we deal with there? And then finally, uh, what has God done in Christ to enable the restoration of a Genesis 1-2 relationship between men and women, husband and wife? So that's kind of how I frame that. Uh, and so the first one's Genesis 1:26, with which you have... Undoubtedly familiarity, God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So um, now what I want to do is zero in on verse 27, uh, which talks about what uh, we observe or notice. So, so if we back this up a little bit, uh, what I'm going to ask couples to do is, what do, you, what do you hear when you hear that passage? What do you notice? Now, I don't know what level of mentoring... We'll get in, you may not be involved with those conversations, but I want you to have in mind, and even Roger and I have talked a little bit about this piece is not as solid in his thing on pre-marriage counseling as he would like it to be, so I find this really important. And the reason is, is that throughout the rest of my next five conversations, I'm going to be making reference back to this completely. How does a Genesis 1-2 couple communicate? How does a Genesis 1-2 couple resolve conflict? How... What does sexuality look like for a Genesis 1-2 marriage? Uh, what does spirituality look like in those kind of contexts? Does that make sense? 
because if we remind, remember that God designed something that actually works really, really well, then and has enabled us in Christ to restore that possibility, why not make that the outcome? Why not make that the goal? Do you see? So with that, uh, the question I ask is, what, is, what does it mean to be created? What is the image of God? Right? So what is the image of God? And you'll notice here in Hebrew poetry that you have... Uh, parallels as the primary way of emphasizing points. So you'll notice in this uh, verse 26 that God created humankind, He created them, He created them. Three beats all saying the same thing, right? But then notice here where it says, in His own image, in the image of God, male and female. So what is the image of God? Right? So it's not personality, it's not temperament, it's not gender, it's not a man who is the image of God or a woman or men or women. It's all men, all women in collaborative, cooperative, human relationship that is the image of God. So the image of God is communal, it is mutual, and that then gets us to the microcosm of marriage. Right? Because in order for us to properly image God, every single one of us on the planet needs to be fully ourselves. That's the individuation piece. We need to be fully ourselves, not a, a, a self in reference to others. We are living in a mutual relationship, but I've got to bring my stuff to the table, both my brokenness and my wholeness. Both elements are needed for us to image God well. So that means that uh, the first two characteristics of a Genesis 1 marriage are that we're created for the image of God and for mutuality. And I've got these down somewhere on, the, on, on one of the sheets, probably in the back. Yeah, so if you want to just do whatever you want with, with regards to that, that's, that's fine. But that means then you'll notice that over... Here's a question that I ask people. What are we, who are we? We're the image of God. What are we here for? To exercise power, control, dominion over the earth. Right? So the question is, over whom or what are persons not intended to exercise dominion, power, or authority? We're not intended to exercise dominion over each other, and we're not intended to exercise dominion over God. So the nature of relationships between men and women can never be power relationships. As soon as they are, capacity for the image of God is compromised. Because we are not built to exercise authority over one another. Not big over small, not, uh, not, not, not male over female, not white over black. We're not intended, if we want to be the image of God... Please notice, we are created in the image of a trinity in which there is no dominion, power, or authority of one element of the trinity over the other. It's a relationship characterized by loving preference. That's what it means for us to be the image of God. So what does that mean in marriage? 
What it means at marriage is that power relationships cannot be allowed to be the primary definer of the relationship between men and women, husband and wife, because as soon as they are, we lose capacity for the image of God. Okay? Um, and, there, and I like to lean on that because often for many people, that's the first time they thought about the nature of power and the nature of power in relationships. And again, please notice, it's not power that's the problem. We're built for power. It's just that the power we're built for is not to be used to exercise dominion over one another. So how is power to be used? Well, we're created to be the image of God. So the question is, how did God use power? And you'll notice that at the end of each creative day, God said of what He had created that day, it is good. Which means, it works. So good is not a category of moral valuation as opposed to bad. It's a category of function. What it is, what it was created to do, are perfectly matched. Form and function perfectly match. It's good. It works. So what enables the power that we were inevitably built for to work? Well, first of all, we have to be in submission to God. We're not given permission to exercise authority over God. So in order for us to properly exercise authority and power, we have to be in surrender and submission to God. Second, we have to um, use our power the way God did, and that is to empower each other. So what did God do with His creation? He empowered it. And then He set it free with capacity to be itself. And He said at the end of each grave day, this works. Right? And you can... You can this, that's the hardest one for people to get their heads around, so I want to make sure you're on track with that. Does that make sense? So we are built for power, but how do we use it? Same way God did. He never uses His power to force. He always uses His power to empower and to release with trust. Why? Because God wants us to be His image. He doesn't want to tell us what to do. He wants to empower us for our lives. Does that make sense? So, that then is the third characteristic of a Genesis 1-2 marriage. Uh, empowerment. So what I like to say to couples is that means that for the rest of your life following your wedding, you are devoted to two primary tasks. One is to be fully yourself. And two is to use your personal power to partner with God in the full emergence of the self of your husband or wife. You devote yourself to their flourishing. You do that work really, really well in surrender and submission to God and you'll be in line for a Genesis 1-2 marriage. Okay? How are you all doing? (laughs) 
That's right. That's why I, I don't even like that language. If, uh, I mean, depending on who I'm talking to, because uh, often this is the first time I've ever thought about this, so I don't want to complicate it by pushing into that. But you'll, but, because uh, the problem with either egalitarian or complementarian marriage is that that works itself into every gender relationship. Men and women in church leadership, men and women in uh, business leadership, etc. Uh, and, and, if this is to be believed, then those questions are secondary and tertiary questions and exactly what you're saying. This is a third way between those two options. It's not a relationship of equality because you can't talk about persons as being equal. Right? I mean, listen to the image that the Apostle Paul uses of the body of Christ. Is an elbow equal to a wrist? Well, that's just nonsensical. They each have their own place and they each are in collaborative, cooperative relationship with the other for full functionality. But equality, that, that doesn't make sense. Um, so, this is the Genesis 1 thing. Any, any other questions on this? And I can come back to any of this. Okay, the next one is Genesis 2 and you're familiar with this. Just this is the really dense chapter, um, and I wish we could spend more time in it, but just to, to we just don't have time. So it says, Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living being. Then the Lord God said, I, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper that is suitable for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he'd call them. Whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the um, uh, sky, to every beast of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper that was suitable for or that corresponded to him. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God then fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. The Hebrew here is Isha. Because she was taken out of man, the Hebrew is Ish. For this reason, then, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So, there's a whole lot here that we could, could work on, but the first thing that I wanted to just draw people's attention to is, first of all, the, you'll notice where the five intimacies come from. We're from the dirt and the breath of God. So physical and spiritual, uh, and that's going to then come, become important when we get down, down to the end. But then, down at verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper that is suitable for, that corresponds to him. We run into a problem. So what's the problem that God now is trying to solve? Isolation. Yeah, emotional. Incomplete image of God. So we're all getting at it. And what's the capture phrase 
that we learn from Genesis 1 about this relationship that's the problem. It's not good. It doesn't work. It's non-functional for the man to be alone, for us to be in isolation, for us to be disconnected relationally from one another. In other words, we need relationships of intimacy in order to be ourselves, but they have to be relationships of a certain kind. And particularly here, he's focused in on marriage, but it can back out. We all need relationships of intimacy in those five dimensions in order to be persons. That's why, by the way, a marriage cannot sustain all of the intimacy needs an individual has. Men and women each need to have relationships with persons with whom they share life are known and knowing that to whom they are not married. Right? There needs to be a network of relationships between men and women uh, that we share life with that, that obviously protect and honor the marriage relationship, but that nonetheless can be characterized by the knowing and being known language of intimacy. So it is not good, and then, uh, but God's dilemma is interesting, and, and this is where the Hebrew gets fascinating to me. His solution is to make a helper that is suitable for or that corresponds to him. Uh, and unfortunately, while helper is an accurate translation, it's not a helpful one. Uh, the Hebrew word is etzer, um, and helper in English usually means things like, you know, assistant or or prop, or like hamburger helper, you know, something to help (laughs) make it work a little better. But the word etzer is used 20 times in the Old Testament. Of those 20 times, two of them are here. So 18 times in the rest of the Old Testament. And of those 18, 17 of them, it refers to God. So whatever else help, helper, etzer means, it cannot mean an assistant. Or a prop. It has to mean something, an entity, a being that is fundamentally essential for existence. Right? But, and here's where the kicker is, it needs to be suitable for or corresponding to him. In other words, and this is where, again, Hebrew is much denser than English. Hebrew has one word that means the same as but different from. And that's the word that's used here. So it needs to be a helper that is the same as him, but different from him. So how do we accomplish this? So what's God's first attempt to solve the not good problem? Animals. Right? And at the end of that, we see the last line that says there was not found for the man a helper that was suitable for or corresponding to him. Why not? Why don't the animals make good happen? Exactly right. And, but what's the real disqualifier in this text? What does he do? He names them And in naming them, exercises authority over them. So any being, any entity over which the man exercises authority is not a being that is suitable as a helper for him. 
This is really important, right? Especially then when we get to part two of the story. So fail. God failed in the first attempt. Why? Because authority can't be allowed to characterize the relationship of helpfulness. So now what? Well, now we cause a, a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He sleeps. God takes one of his ribs. And here again is another anomaly of translation. The Hebrew has one word that is used in multiple places to mean multiple things. So context determines translation. And while it can be translated rib, the most common translation of this word is side. So God doesn't remove a rib. He removes a side from the man and forms into a woman the side which he had taken from the man, closes up the flesh at that place. So now what do we have? Two permanently incomplete entities, each of which require another in order to be one. So notice what does the man say when God brings the woman to him. Here is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is the same as me, but she will be called Isha. Notice the same word, but with a feminine ending. So she is the same as me, but different from me. So it satisfies the necessary same but different requirement. Does that make sense? Uh, in, in order for the uh, kind of thing. That, so this now brings us... Oh, and, and let me just get back into this. Uh, so then the... Um, uh, oops, I messed up, sorry. It's not going the way I want it to go. There we go. So, last two verses. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife. That's called differentiation. Please notice this is in a culture in which differentiation did not occur. The Jewish culture. So, every time I have... What about an Hispanic culture? in which the woman stays under her father's protection until she's old enough to, 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 to be married? Or what an, about an Asian culture? Or what about a traditional African culture? Doesn't culture trump Scripture? No. The Jewish culture was as controlled in this way as any culture in modern, cult, in modern age. And Moses is saying to those cultures, this, what we are doing doesn't work. Because it was assumed that the woman would leave father and mother and cleave to husband and they would become one flesh. It was not assumed that the man would. In fact, what happened was the wife would join her husband's family and simply become one of the properties of her father-in-law. And Moses, already observing this, says, no, no, no. It's for this theological reason that it is necessary for both husband and wife to leave families of origin so that oneness is not compromised. To the degree that we have not left home, oneness is compromised. And those of you, you know, we were talking, some of you in the break there, you notice how difficult this is in the early stages of marriage if we have not differentiated, if we have not left home, how hard it is to move towards oneness. If our primary point of reference is family of origin or peer defining peers, that oneness is compromised. But also intimacy is compromised. 
And this is what's going on in that last verse. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this is not talking simply about physical reality, i.e. they had no clothes on. It is talking about knowing and being known by one another. And the nature of their intimacy was without shame. So this is God's ideal for marriage. In addition to image of God, mutuality and empowerment, we now have oneness and intimacy. That's why God designed marriage. That's what the ideal is. That's what he's after. That's what he wants. And all of those things then point back up towards capacity for the image of God to care for the planet the way we're built for and intended to in the first place. Okay? Questions, comments, thoughts before we move on to how we screwed it up in about ten minutes? That make sense? Okay, so coming out of chapter two, image of God anchored in dependence on God expressing itself in mutual empowerment, one of the other, building towards oneness and intimacy. That's the couple that comes out of chapter 2 into chapter 3. And you'll notice that in chapter 3, the very first thing that gets challenged is dependence on God. Is God good? Has God said? Can you maintain Identity apart from obedience. Apart from dependence on God. And that's what gets challenged is her grip, his grip, because remember, they're mutual, intimate, one. It is not that Eve is out there wandering around and the serpent comes to her. It is that they are together and the serpent comes to them. She is the spokesperson in this conversation, but is not the only partner in it. And that what gets challenged is her grip, their grip on their identity as dependent on God. And so she sees that the tree is good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make wise, took from its fruit and ate, gave to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Larry Crabb has got a wonderful book in which he reflects on the misunderstanding of this passage, i.e. that Eve was the one who was out there in isolation and that Adam got deceived by her, the fact is he is with her and says nothing. So his book is called The Silence of Adam. Whose job was it to protect the mutuality and the oneness? Do you see? So this is his take on it. Uh, gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So what's the first thing that takes a hit when they disconnect from that dependent relationship with God that enables their identity? They know that they're naked, so shame begins to kick in and with that shame what do they begin to do hide shame and hiding go together and who do they hide from first each other so the intimacy that they came out of chapter 2 with is the first hit when shame creeps into the relationship they begin to hide from each other but then 
They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So now what? As a result of? And? One more. Fear. So they're afraid of God, so they hide from God. And finally, the blame kicks in and they start to hide from themselves. So the four characteristics characteristics of a Genesis 3 marriage are shame and hiding, fear and blame. And then the final one down later on in the chapter, the man called his wife's name Eve. So what has he done? He has named her. He has begun to exercise authority and power over her. Please notice, we are built for power. We will use our power in one of three ways. We will either use our power to empower, lift, and enable the other, or we will use our power to manipulate or dominate. And that's the Genesis 3 reality. If we see ourselves in the weaker position, we will use our power to manipulate. We'll do it emotionally. We'll do it sexually. We'll do it financially. We'll do it physically if we see ourselves in the weaker position. But if we see ourselves in the stronger position, we'll use our power to dominate. Domination or manipulation are inappropriate uses of the power for which we were built as the image of God. That power is to be used the way God uses His power, which is to empower and equip others. So, now I try to pause dramatically with the couples that I'm walking with and say these are the two primary options you have. And you will get to choose every day for your entire married life which of these two marriages you want. Genesis 1-2 which is by far the most difficult, but which always works. Or Genesis 3, which is the default and easiest, but which never works. So now you see what I mean when we talk about conflict resolution and communication and sexuality and spirituality and finances. You will either come to those things out of image of God, mutuality, empowerment, oneness, intimacy, and they will contribute to those things, or you will come to those things out of shame, fear, power, misuse of power, hiding, and blame. Does that make sense? So I usually like to let them think about it for a week. Yeah, so which of these two options do you want to have as the marriage that you are choosing? Because you get to choose every day which of these two marriages you want. And by far the most popular marriage, the default marriage, is the Genesis 3 marriage. How many recognize, besides me, these traits and tendencies, even in a 
in the marriage that we have chosen with each other. You know, when I'm insecure, when I'm ashamed, when I'm afraid, what do I do? I grab, I manipulate, I dominate, I hide, I blame. You know? Questions, comments on this? Hmm. So then, the question is, what has God done in Christ to enable the restoration of a Genesis 1-2 marriage? And what will it cost you to have that kind of marriage? Because it doesn't come free and it doesn't come cheap. So this is where we go to one of the most misunderstood passages in the New Testament in recent days, and that's Ephesians 5. And the misunderstanding begins with translational difficulties. So you'll notice I begin here in chapter 5, verse 22. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And you'll notice, if you can see on on the PowerPoint there, that the be subject to is in italics. Which means what? It does not appear in the original Greek. So the original Greek translation of verse 22 is wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Which all of you grammarians will notice doesn't make any sense. Because we're missing the verb. So if one needs a verb, where might one collect a verb? The verse before which then helps us by saying, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. And now the verse makes sense because it's not a verse, it's a sentence. So a translational decision has resulted in decades, generations, centuries of the abuse of women under the guise that women are supposed to submit to their husbands without any reference to the fact that it is only in the context of mutual submission that individual submission makes sense. So submission is not the problem. Submission is really good. Please notice, it is submission to Christ that will enable this. That gets us back to the Genesis 1 reality, Genesis 1-2 reality, of dependence on God. Notice, if we get that right, if we are submitted to Christ individually, then there's hope for our mutual relationship. Right? Okay, so, wives to your husbands, any questions on that before we dig into that a little more? Anybody doing okay? Okay, wives to your... Yep. Right. Yeah. Well, and if you want to, de- I've kind of led you through it to try and highlight the anomalies, right? I've tried to bring them to the surface. But you don't have to do any of that. Just start in verse 21. Then it becomes clear that submission of wives to husbands 
is in the context of the submission of husbands to wives and wives to husbands and both to Christ. So, so we can kind of do an end run around that. But I, I, I like a fight, so I tend to... That's the problem. Almost every translation has verse 21 attached to the previous thing. And it's not that it doesn't flow there. It's just that it's intended to be a bridge from there. And if you separate it with paragraphic marks, then you're in trouble. Well, we'll get to that, but you're exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I have not heard of that one. There are there are a dozen others that I've worked on on this one, but that that would be a good one. I, I'm always looking for ways to explain this because this works itself out in uh, in church governance. It works itself out in in social environments. Uh, it's just if we don't get this right, then the, and the authority structures between men and women, I mean, I think one of the primary ways, this is my personal prejudice, but I think one of the primary ways the enemy has crippled the human capacity for full emergence is in the dissolution of the relationships between men and women. We simply are unable to work in health together. And it's damaging at unspeakable levels. Just how married do you want to be? Yep. It's a book by um, Sarah, and I think his name is Josh Sumner. She's a professor at Azusa Pacific, and I think he's a plumber. Uh, I think it's it, her name is Sarah Sumner. Yeah, so, so, and that's another translational thing that you're picking up. The idea there is, is respect, honor, reverence. So it's the idea of submission and surrender to his authority. Yeah, that's good. Thanks. Okay, so now we get in. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. For, and this is really important, and I'm glad Peter highlighted this. The husband is the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. And here's, well, let me finish this and then we'll come back. Um, he himself being the savior of the body. So as the church is subject to Christ, so wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, you are to love your wives just as Christ. Uh, wait a minute. What did I do? There we go. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's how husbands ought to love their own wives, as they do their own bodies. Whoever loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. It is for this reason, then, that a man leaves his father and his mother, is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. You hear the reference there back to Genesis 2. 
This mystery is great, but I'm speaking primarily with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you love his wife as himself, and the wife see to it that she respect her husband. So, what is he asking us to do here? First of all, he says, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. How is Christ the head of the church? Well, Paul does not leave that for negotiation. He defines it. How did Christ become the head of the church? By giving his life up for her. So what do we know about how Christ orients himself to the church? Is it a power relationship? Is it an authority relationship? So it's not about Christ is the boss of the church. It's that Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. So the metaphor is not corporate America, CEO and minion. It's the organic connectedness between head and body, without which neither would persist or exist. So it cannot be about authority or power. Head, therefore, must not mean the same thing as in charge. It cannot mean that. Otherwise, it does violence to the metaphor. Please remember that in first century Palestine, first century, the head was not the governing authority of the body. The heart was. So Paul is not using a 21st century head-in-charge model. He's using a 1st century head-as-correlated-to-the-body model. The reason I underline that is because the word head gets us into trouble because we automatically plug in meaning from 2,000 years after the fact and we get it wrong. And Paul, notice how hard he works to make sure we understand the nature of the relationship between Christ and the church. What is that relationship? Well, Christ lays His life down for her. He uh, cleanses her. He sanctifies her. He washes her with water. Why? He invests His whole self in the full emergence of the church's beauty. So that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle. Doesn't that sound like the Genesis 1-2 mutual empowerment? In which Christ now invests his whole being, all his talents, all his gifts, all his abilities, all his dreams, all his hopes, are laid down in the altar of the cross in order to allow for the full emergence of the church in all her beauty. Which then enables the church to submit to Christ without fear. Does that help? Does that make sense? So in the first century, what what was the role of the head and the body? It it was the seat of the emotions. The heart was the decider. But again, that's why I'm suggesting he's probably not using those stereotypical images. He's using the connection head-body 
Uh, the idea here is, is of the Greek word is kephale, which means source. So this, this idea of, of mutual ensourcement is, is, is critical here. So, in the first century, to whom Paul is writing, in a male-dominated culture, who goes first in submission and surrender? The husband does. Why? Because he's got the sword. He's got the power. So what does he do with his positional, political, social power? What does he do with it? He lays it down. He sacrifices it to enable the full emergence of the power of his wife. Which then, what does she do with her power? She uses it to honor and respect him. That's why at the end here it says, the wife see to it that she respect her husband. So respect and love are two sides of the same coin. Well, that's why, exactly right. If you're not in a Genesis 1-2, Ephesians 5 marriage, this isn't safe. As soon as power is used manipulatively or dominatively, submission is off the table. It's not safe to submit to somebody who's dominating. You're not, you can't do it. And, And it works exactly the same. Because as you point out, in our culture, power is not an exclusive male domination. Sometimes women have power in relationships. And sometimes the power that women have in relationships, sexual or emotional or financial or whatever, can be used inappropriately. And in those cases, it's inappropriate for husbands to submit. So the question is, in our 21st century marriage, who goes first in submission? Whoever it is that's got the power. In other words, whoever in that moment can make their will stick is the first one to lay down the right to do that. And this, by the way, you can see how hard it is to choose a Genesis 1-2 marriage. Because if I can make what I want happen, why ever would I not do that? Well, that's going to produce a Genesis 3 marriage. Good. Yep. Great. Right. Yeah. So Paul's way of saying this, because right in the very next chapter, verse, he's going to talk about children uh, honoring, submitting, obeying their parents. But the word he uses there is talking about um, children below the age of ten or eleven. So, in other words, Paul recognizes that the task of parenting children before they're adults is training them in precisely this. Uh, I want to empower my children to be fully themselves without, and then this is the side of it, exasperating them. So, it's not about blind obedience. It's about parenting your child in a way that is appropriate for her which may mean some boundaries for number one that's different than for number two. It may mean 
some responsibilities given to number two before number one is ready for them. It may mean empowering them into their own lives, which enables a willingness to use that power to surrender and serve. So he recognizes, I think, the developmental peace as we learn into this from, from children onward. 13. 12 or 13. Right. Exactly. Control outcomes. Yep. Yep. And the piece on that is that that means I need to be a student and a servant of my children. Which doesn't mean they get to tell me what to do. Those are different things. In fact, as soon as they get to tell me what to do, the relationship is shifted and authority is being misused. Likewise, I need to become a student and a servant of my wife. I need to learn her and the mystery and the wonder that is her so I can empower the full emergence of the gift God has given me in this person and vice versa. You can see how hard this is and why Genesis 3 is the default. Because when I'm afraid, what am I going to do with my power? I'm going to grab it. I'm going to hang on to it for dear life. You know, I don't have a sword. I have like kind of a plastic cutlery, but I'm going to use it, you know, however I can to get what I want. It doesn't work. I want to talk a little bit about the word submission because uh, Paul says this is the way back home. This is how we move to a Genesis 1-2 reality. So, the word submit here literally translates uh, be subject to. uh, And in a military context, which is its origin, it means to line up under. So, this comes from a time in history in which there were few standing armies. So you'd have a palace guard or a bodyguard or slaves conscripted into the army. If you wanted free men to join your army, you would need to find men who would be willing to line up under you. Okay? So play a thought game with me here for a minute. If you were a young man in between spring planting and fall harvest and had this in-between period and were there in the marketplace of your village one day and there standing on the side of the road was, was your prince or the king or the landowner, whatever, with a little sign that said, seeking men to line up under me. We want to defend the borders or we want to extend the borders or whatever it is. What would you want to know before you chose to line up under him, to submit to him? Huh? You want to know something about his character. Is he trustworthy? What kind of a person is he? What else? You want to know, is there, is there support for this? Good. What else? What's the mission? Where, where are we going? Is this something I'm willing to kind of run the risk of losing my life for? Do you have a strategy? 
is there, have you thought, of, what's your win-loss record? I mean, what am I, any and all of those very practical, what's the plan to provision the troops? How much is, is this going to cost me over what period of time, right? So, now, that's the image. Now, flip it. Here you are, a very attractive young woman in the marketplace one day for a husband. And here's your beloved standing on the side of the road with his little sign saying, seeking wife to line up under me. What do you need to know before you choose to do that? All of those same things. What's his mission? Is this something I'm willing to get behind and support? Does he have a plan? Does he have a job? Right? So those basic kind of things. And Paul says those things are all very, very important. But what you really need to know, more than all of those other things, is during the course of your dating and courtship, has this beloved of yours demonstrated capacity to lay his life down in service of you and your dreams, ambitions, hopes? Because if he hasn't, then he's not safe to submit to. So in a non-military context like marriage, submission means to bring yourself voluntarily into supportive alignment with another. And remember, who is supposed to submit to whom? Got it? So husbands to wives, wives to husbands, and it moves back and forth depending on who has the power. So as, if, if this makes sense, in a non-military context, which I'm hopeful will agree a marriage is, sometimes it feels like armed combat, but nonetheless, that means to bring yourself into supportive alignment with the other. So, submission must be earned and offered and cannot be demanded or defined. So as soon as one or the other of a marriage says, the Bible says, you have to submit to me, you know that that person is not safe to submit to. And that if all the people on the planet to whom you might submit, that person is not one that you ought to submit. So back even to the parenting Thing, right Over time, having raised up our children in the principles of submission, in the principles of yes against your will, we want to have earned the right as a father, as a mother, that they honor us by recognizing the superiority of or the wisdom in or the strength of our decision. And so they don't submit themselves out of fear of punishment, but because it's the best idea for me. That's what we want. Now, you'll also recognize that kids are going to experiment with that in our culture. They're going to bang up against walls. They're going to try out alternate things. That is necessary for their differentiation. I don't want my sons believing what I believe because I believe it. I want them believing what they believe because they've chosen to believe it. And it's their belief, even if it's different than mine.
That's really hard. You know? I regularly have phone calls from parents at the university who are, are, are horror-stricken that their son or daughter comes home at Thanksgiving and isn't sure they believe in Jesus anymore. It's a good thing. Because if they can get rid of Jesus between September and November, they never had Him in the first place. And the Jesus they had is not a Jesus that's sustainable into their adulthood. So, they'll come around, or they won't. But better to find out what's true than not. And here's the hard part. Don't make loving them conditioned on their believing what you believe. That's the hard part. Okay, so, this is always mutual, and it's in Christ which means that submission to Christ is the only thing that makes mutual submission possible. So it restores this redeemed reality. And you'll notice Paul's rabbinic practice of referring back to Genesis 2 from Ephesians 5, signaling that he intends that this now be the new pattern. It's the old one. This is what enables that. Image of God, mutuality, empowerment, oneness, and intimacy. And that gets us back to those uh, uh, foundational outputs. Okay? So that's the first hour of my pre-marriage conversation with couples. And you'll notice how foundational that is, right? Because now we can talk about how this works itself out in communication and conflict and so on. But the other piece that I want to make sure to talk about is what love is. So I'll ask them, because they'll have used, why do you want to get married? Because I love him or her. Cool. What does that mean? And, you know, some of them are smart to me now because word's gotten around, so they'll, they'll waffle around on things. But inevitably, there's a feeling attachment, which I don't want to discount. I just want them to understand that that feeling of love is not adequate for 50 years of marriage. So love is, first of all, a disposition. It's a leaning. It's an orientation that goes beyond attraction. Attraction is important, but attraction needs to be trained properly. Attraction is not just desire. Attraction is about personhood, not just body. Or, or some fantasy image of what he or she will bring. This is one of the reasons why I often talk about the difference between male and female pornography. Because that's where desire gets misunderstood. Female pornogra- male pornography is all, almost always about body parts. About, uh, uh, and and it, a depersonalized, objectified uh, image. Female pornography is almost always about fantasy, about roles. And what ha- it happens there is no less a depersonalization. It's just that instead of a depersonalization to body parts, it's a depersonalization to roles. He's the knight in shining armor. He's the provider. He's the rescuer. That's still not a person. It's still, and so so either body parts or roles get sexualized 
and turned into the cultivation of lust. That's why pornography is not a very good foundation for satisfaction in in marriage because you're married to actually real people. Do, do, Do you see? So, so love is not just about physical attraction. I think that can be important, but that gets overweight in our culture. So I, Dallas Willard trained us to use the language of disposition or leaning. Love is an orientation. So when I have conflict with a brother or sister and I still love them, I'm leaning towards them rather than leaning away from them. That's that disposition and orientation, Right? But then it moves to decision or choice. I'm going to choose to love you. And that then then moves to action. I'm going to act as if I loved you even if I don't feel like it. And that in time and regularly produces feelings which ebb and flow otherwise. So you can train feelings in response to actions which are in response to decisions which are founded on disposition. Uh, and that, by the way, is really critical for our millennial generation for whom feeling is everything. What if I fall in love with somebody else? You will. You probably will. During the course of your dating relationship, maybe during the course of your marriage, somebody else will be more attractive to you in the moment than your husband or wife is. Cool. Own it. But don't do anything about it. Lean away not towards. If you see that beginning to bubble up, there are now some conversations that you can't have with that person. Like how you feel towards them. You don't say to your co-worker, I have feelings for you. That's not helpful. <laughs> right? Uh, Instead, you choose an orientation, a disposition to your husband or your wife, and you now act intentionally out of that decision, even when it's hard and difficult. And please remember remember the divorce statistics. Those things don't occur because marriage is easy. They occur because there are times when I can't stand my husband or wife. And it's much easier to be dispositioned, oriented to an outside than an inside. Right? So I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to work on this. I'm going to let young love die and grieve its loss for the development and the building of old love. So when Jude and I got married 37 years ago, whatever it was, and we stood at the altar of St. Stephen's United Church, which we're going to drive past in October. We've been invited to go back to the 40th anniversary of the church we helped plant in Edmonton in October. So, 40th anniversary, dear God. That, that just makes you feel so old. But anyway, we're going back for that. And we're going to, I'm, I will, uh, Judy doesn't care about any of this stuff, but I'm going to drive past that place and we're going to find our old house and, you know, because that matters to me. Um, when I said to her and she to me that we loved each other, we had no idea what we were talking about. I mean, we felt things, right? We felt, and, and I think we were genuine in our confession. 
But in the 37 years since then, that word has shifted meaning rather dramatically, and I would not trade in a heart for anything what old love feels like compared to what new love felt like. I love the fireworks. I love the wonder and the beauty of it. And I still, my heart still beats faster when she comes in the room. No lie. But I wouldn't trade 37 years ago for now. There's a depth and a texture and a richness. But you don't get that by just showing up. You get there by showing up for work. Right? So that disposition and then the five core topics, uh, which we've already talked about. Communication, conflict resolution, finances, and sexuality. The reason I talk about those two, money and sex, are because those are still the top two reasons for the dissolution of marriage in North America. Um, Plus irreconcilable differences, which is the catch-all. And what I'd like to tell people is that dating is not about compatibility. It's about discovering how and where you're incompatible. Because if one of you is a man and one of you is a woman, you are not compatible. So dating is really about discovering the places of incompatibility and then making the decision to live with somebody who's not at all like you. Because there are in every couple between five and ten irreconcilable differences. They might shift over the course of the decades, but for the most part, there will still be the same five to ten irreconcilable differences 35 years in as started out the, the journey. You know, like... And for Jude and I, I mean, it's, it's, it, I use them in sermons all the time, so you've heard me talk about what some of them are. Uh, she and I tell time very differently, right? She and I define clean very differently. And she is, to this day, singularly resistant to being educated in the right way to do things. I don't understand because it's clearly superior. <laughs> I'm, I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> but does that make sense? So, so we just have to say to couples, compatibility is nice. You both like to snowboard. Well, isn't that cute? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. You swing dancing, very cool. That'll, that'll give you a way to work out your aggression on the dance floor. <laughs> you know, I'm glad that you're compatible in those things, but they don't matter. They're not unnecessary. They're nice. You know, long walks on the sunset beach. They're cool. Love that. But how do you deal with the five to ten irreconcilable differences that will be gravel in your shoe on your 35th wedding anniversary? Because, I mean, here we are still 37 years later, and, and those of you, Greg and Eileen and others of you guys could probably say the same thing. You, you know, you still sometimes just shake your head. How can he? How how can he? How 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 is it possible for somebody to think that way? Right. Anyway, questions or comments? Huh? <laughs> <laughs>
And, and I mean, I, 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 the reason I set this framework is that then I think you can see if we get this first button, first hole stuff, then we have trajectory for building on the incompatibilities. We can take advantage of the fact that she doesn't think about things the way I do. That's a very good thing because I'm wrong often. And I need somebody who thinks about things very differently than I do to help me get through the day. You know, who doesn't see things the same way I do. And, and, and on and on the list goes. So, um, this is really about marriage enrichment, but if you get that foundation right, we've got framework. Yeah? That's great. That's really a good question. Yeah, because that's what God built us for. That intimacy, that oneness. So satisfaction would be a real good word to frame what a healthy, holistic, five-dimensional marriage looks like. Remembering, too, that it's not intended to be in isolation. This is mutual, so our friendship frames help us with contentment, and that would be another word uh, of of satisfaction or contentment or or celebration. You know, uh, could could be could be part of that, as long as we remember that that comes as almost byproduct towards rather than 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 ultimate goal. Yeah, that's that's a great question, Michael. Thank you. Very rarely. So, yeah. Mostly questions because, and for those of you who are part of the soul care conversation, really the goal, even in this, which I view as a form of discipleship, is helping to become people to become more fully themselves. So I want to listen them into their own lives. So, so the questions are often the most helpful ways of bringing people to that awareness. Um, and especially because you probably have noticed your marriage is just not at all like anybody else's marriage. It's one of the things that I have to work hard on, especially in, in this pornographied culture, is the inevitable comparisons that occur in terms of the sexual relationship between husbands and wives or between the how do you guys fight or how do you discipline or how do you, you, you know, and there's tons of books and, and more or less helpful, but usually it's, no, you two got to figure this out. It's, it's both of you got to show up, be fully present, and then learn how to do this together. So I can 
talk about how we screwed it up, that's helpful, often more than anything else. First of all, to let you know that if you don't get it right the 83rd time, it's probably pretty common. Because that's the other element, just to underline this, that 10 minutes after you're married to somebody, you're married to somebody else. Right? Because people grow, they develop, they change, they, they develop new interests. They, well, you never said you were, I know. You know, I can still remember one, forgive me for this, because it's just flashed in my mind. I was, down, I was down home, Jude and I were down home for dinner. We'd come down from Edmonton, sitting with mom and dad, and mom had made the meal that she made on Thursday nights for as long as I can remember, which is the round steak that she had Salisbury steak, so it had braised and then it had soaked, and it was all tender and juicy and wonderful and mashed potatoes and gravy and all of this stuff. And, 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 and they were, we were sitting around talking, and, and, and um, I can't remember how this came up, but my mom was, we were saying thank you for the, for the, for the meal, and, and, and then she said, yeah, I've always done this because I think it, it's always been your dad's favorite. And my dad, they've been married that time by about 35 or 40 years, said, you know, I, I don't really like this. <laughs> and and I've, I've never really liked it. Now, if you knew my mom at all, for her, that was the funniest thing she'd ever heard in her life. She just laughed and laughed and laughed. She thought that was the biggest joke. She, because she, she, my mom took nothing personally. That was just her, how she, she was, you know. So she didn't r- run off crying into the bedroom and throw herself, you know, none of that. And she just laughed and laughed and laughed. That, now, but that, how do we, how does this happen? You just grow and develop and mature, right? So for me, it's more about, well, how do you think you two plan to, to resolve that? And inevitably, it comes down to one version or another. Well, if she would just change her mind, I, we would be fine. Can I suggest to you that she's probably never going to change her mind on this? So now what? Hmm. And sometimes you can see the expectations crumbling before your eyes. Because there is a sense in which once we get married, I can whip him or her into shape. We'll finally get this, huh? Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and just, just not only will they not become more conforming to your way of being, but the reason they've been conforming to the degree to which they have so far is because they want to get married. So once they're married, there's a greater likelihood that they will revert to what they really think, feel, or believe on these things, which will often come as a big surprise to you. So, more questions and exploration. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
your marriage is going to be yours and it's going to be different. There are some things, some takeaways, but it's more at the skill and less at the specific level. Yeah, I'll, as soon as I see them. Or else I'll try and get them to see them. I just assume it. And I, I, because I, I, tell, I tell my undergrads, when they, if they choose to come to me, that my job is to break them up. That I'm going to work hard at that. Well, because my view is, and it's a bit of a joke, but at some level, if I, can, if I can make you question your ability to make this commitment, I will have done you well. I will have served you well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to assume that the reason we're doing this is not to hoop jump, but because we really want to dig in and do the, do the work. Yes. Yep. 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 So it's more on the on the remember the continuum we did of advice, counsel, soul care, spiritual direction. It's more on the counsel piece, right? Yep. And sometimes there's some advice piece. You know, uh, sit in the driveway for 15 minutes before you walk in the door. That can help you be there when you're there. Because your kids are going to assume that when you walk in the door, you're there. But you're still on the freeway driving home and you're going to get ticked off because they demand your immediate presence and you're not there. But your body is. So let your body catch up with the car. And then the two of you can walk in together and your kids will be okay. That was one of the hard lessons I had to learn among dozens of others. Anybody else? Yeah, so often, right, great, I ask. Yep, you guys sleeping together? What's the nature? Because, and I'll do it, remember in that first hour, it's why are you getting married? Why are you getting married to him or her? How have you done at the engagement levels? I'll have given them usually the five pages of questions. And in there is an appropriate protection of sexual boundaries. And so we'll walk, if I can, through that, those five intimacies. How are you doing it at knowing and being known in these areas and, and spiritually and sexually or physically are, are components of that. And, and what I want them to know is that I'm not doing this to shame you. I'm not doing this to disqualifying you. I'm just saying if you're sleeping together, I need to know that because I need to give you some additional tools to enable you to overcome that problem. And if you're living together, I'm going to ask you to not live together between now and your wedding. Or I'm going to ask you if you absolutely have to. I've got a couple right now that are living in the same house but have agreed not to sleep together, which will be challenging, but I I really believe that they can do it because I've told them I'm going to be asking them all the time. Uh, And Because I really think that that can recalibrate some of the value of what sexuality brings. Because if we can't be direct and honest and intimate in this conversation, then what are we having it for? I'm useless to you. 
I don't want to damage your marriage. I really want to, because I believe, I really believe in marriage. You know. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.